0: From the campus of Stanford University and on location, this is the Entrepreneurs Radio Show and Podcast featuring in-depth one-on-one interviews with purpose-driven entrepreneurs and high-performance game changers committed to extraordinary ideas, preeminence, and multi-generational success. Our radio show and podcast illuminates the struggles, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes these game changers bring to industries, organizations, and lives. Hosted by Tom DiOro, Principal of Podfather Media.
1: Thank you, Tatum. For our guest today, let's welcome Bill Barnheit, founder and CEO of Abra and a Stanford alumni. Abra is a peer-to-peer digital money transfer network, and he's also a chairman of Boom Financial, which offers mobile banking for the unbanked, replacing cash services with a federally insured smartphone-based bank account. For more information, feel free to visit Abra.com. Again, that's A-B-R-A dot Come on. Bill welcome to the show thank you so much for being on here we're super honored and uh, of course excited
2: thanks for having me I really appreciate it and I'm looking forward to the conversation
1: excellent bill we'll start off our, our show we like to start off our show with you know if you have a, a quote or an axiom or a prayer or a mantra that did sort of moves you it could be anything you know even from family friends whatever it is do you have a,
2: a particular quote or statement that uh, you'd like to share Oh, wow. So I'll tell you, my mantra or kind of personal mission is is doing my part to enable financial freedom. I believe that access to capitalism is the kind of rising tide that raises all boats, not just here in the US, but globally, uh, particularly in developing markets. And that's really been my personal mission for the last decade is to give people access to financial services that ultimately give them access to various forms of capitalism. I
1: love that. At what point, if we'll do a a deep dive on that uh, enable financial freedom, if you can recall at what point in your life where it really resonated with you as a person, that that was really important for for people in their lives and that you wanted to make a contribution to that.
2: Yeah, I would say it goes back about 15 years ago. I a lot of work on the internet, early kind of dot com era work, I was at Netscape years ago, and then did some work in in kind of like the web 2.0 space. And I I got pulled into uh, some work in in Mexico, where I got exposed to banking and money transfer services, uh, not only there, but then eventually in the Philippines and in the Caribbean. And it was really incredible for me to see uh, how backward some of those financial services were, and how expensive it actually is to be poor right? It is incredibly expensive to be poor. The the, the cost of cash services, the, the cost of short-term loans and financing, it is incredible, right? I, I'm fairly fortunate that, you know, financially I'm doing fine. And for me, the cost of capital is like close to zero. And, but for somebody who's poor, the cost of capital can be a hundred X, right? It's just, you know, it's just untenable for a lot of people globally. And it equates to the opposite of what my mission is, which is, you know, non-financial freedom. And, and I, I quickly realized that the technology that I was so passionate about was not servicing that community, that global community, the way, the way that it could be or should be. And fortunately for all of us, there's lots of people who are doing their parts to enable this now all over the world, right? And, but uh, it's been a, like now a, a 10 plus year mission for me to do my part. And it's something that I'm comfortable and happy spending the rest of my career working on.
1: I'm curious, where did you get that, that level of uh, care? Because I I sense a real sincere level of care for, uh, not to sound trite, but like humanity or just people.
2: Well, I appreciate that. But, you know, look, one, it is fun to work on. It's personally very, very gratifying to know that you can work on really cool and interesting technology problems that can ultimately help a billion people. Right. At Abra, for example, we're, we've just recently passed, uh, I think, something like a million wallets or certainly in the hundreds of thousands, but I think we're at a million wallets now. And a lot of those wallets are used by you know upper middle class investors here in the US, but the same wallet system is used by people in the Philippines, in Guatemala, in Mexico, even in Haiti, where they're putting in a few dollars into their wallet to earn interest. And I don't know that we've ever had a banking system, and this is what the, the power of the cryptocurrency model—that really was a, a level playing field that could be used equally by you and I, and equally by poor farmers in Mindanao province in the Philippines, right? And so, you know, that's a breakthrough. And you know, to me, it's it's personally just very gratifying to be to be part of that, and to know that that I can be a, play a small part in making that technology useful to a billion people. It's just awesome.
1: How do you? other than the 1 million wallets, do you you gauge your own level? It sounds like fulfillment actually seems to matter more than just the success. Am I correct or am I reaching? Well, they go hand in hand. It's hard to
2: feel fulfilled if I've spent 10 years of my life and millions of dollars of my investors' money building a service that no one wants. But uh, that aside, yeah, I prefer personally that I can build a service that is not just accessible to the elite from a financial income pyramid perspective, but to everyone. And, um, you know, at Abro, what we've come to realize is, is that I'll stick with my Philippines example. I don't know why we're picking on the sure. Philippines, but, but if I'm one of those poor farmers, relatively poor farmers, who's putting $100 into our interest account and making 10% on that interest, and I'm, or I'm a, a lawyer with half a million dollars in that interest account in the U.S., the interest means just as much to me as a lawyer as it does to the farmer. Right, because it's it's in absolute terms, it's a big percentage of my net worth. And so and so we take that very, very seriously. And that's part of where the gratification comes from in realizing that the emotional tie I have to financial freedom means the same thing to everyone. It just has maybe a different absolute value in the developed world versus in the developing world. But in terms of what it means to you emotionally, we find it tends to mean the same thing everywhere. Can you share with us a
1: bit about that? emotional tie to financial freedom and even provide further examples. Well, ultimately,
2: you know, having money, you know, what purpose does it serve? Everything comes down to a feeling that you get, right? What is the feeling you get from not being beholden to your job or, or being beholden to a paycheck or the idea that you have a safety net under you if you lose your job? Like If you are basically living paycheck to paycheck, as most people on the planet do, what does it mean to have a safety net under you? Well, ultimately, it's this feeling that you are going to be able to provide for your family, that you are going to be okay, that you can eventually retire and not have to work 75 hours a week or, or whatever is dictated by your you know personal conditions and, and lifestyle. And so ultimately, financial freedom comes down to this, this feeling that you have of security, of, of freedom. And... Um, Ultimately, that's, that's what money should be. It shouldn't really be about money for the sake of money. It should be about the the feeling of of personal freedom.
1: Now on that personal freedom, there's obviously a formula to achieving that, or a number of formulas to achieving that. At what point do you want your, I'll say clients for lack of a better word, for your clients or people who are part of Abra to kind of feel that for themselves? You know, is it right off the get-go when they become involved with, or, you know, at a certain point they'll get that feeling contingent on their contribution to it.
2: Yeah, I'll be honest. A lot of people get into crypto because they look at it as a a get rich quick scheme. And what I hope everybody comes to realize quickly is, is there really is no such thing for the masses as a get rich quick, get rich quick scheme. And if you have gotten rich quick, it's because you're lucky. And so whether you got lucky because you were somebody who bought Tesla or, or Netflix stock over a 10 year period or not, it's the luck. And so, you know. Human beings have a very difficult time understanding exponential concepts. And the most basic of exponential concepts is compounding interest, right? The idea that I could put a little bit of money into an interest-earning account and earn more and more and more based upon the fact that I'm earning even interest on my interest over time is, in the short term, very difficult to grasp. Because if I say, hey, you could be a millionaire if you save over 20, 30, 40 years, it's difficult just to accept Uh, right? But, you know, and and it's also difficult to accept that we go from another exponential concept is is in computing, right? And so computers used to be the size of rooms and could basically do a few calculations a second. You know, now my smartphone is the size of a piece of paper and can do a thousand times more calculations than the computers that took the astronauts to the moon in, in the 60s. So actually millions of times more per second. And so That's a concept that the average person, this idea of exponential stuff, it's very hard for us to grasp that until it's happened. And then it's obvious, right? So if you can extrapolate that in advance, you can say, hey, if I do these things, if I save, if I leverage compounding interest, I will have a really good safety net. I will have a really good nest egg. And I can also take small risks with five, 10 percent of my income on things like cryptocurrencies and get outsized returns while still building that nest egg. And those are very powerful concepts that people, now back to your original question, that people do learn quickly once they start to see it happening. Once the flywheel starts moving, right? They say, okay, I get it. I believe. I see where this is going. This is very powerful.
1: Excellent. This is excellent. You're listening to the Entrepreneurs Radio Show and podcast on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. We're talking today. With Bill Barite, who's the founder and CEO of Abra. For more information, feel free to visit abra.com. Again, that's abra a b r a dot com. Bill, I noticed you have a T-shirt, but I'm unable to see the full word of it. Can you share with us what, what it, it says it's, and uh, you know,
2: why it? Means to,
1: what it means? It's the to you.
2: Dadalorian. It was a Father's Day present from my kids. You know, I'm I'm a big uh, Star Wars Mandalorian. Now, Mandalorian fan, and so I guess in suburbia, I'm now the official Dadalorian. So I don't know if your viewers will ever be able to see this, but yeah, it's uh, got an interesting. Well, that's exactly
1: why I I asked you because I I wasn't able to because we hit your mic, which is great, uh, is there. I couldn't see the full word, and I didn't want to take a chance at saying what I thought it said. That's it, that's great. So if you don't mind, we segue even to your children. Do you also have children in mind when you, you know, when you created Abra and any of the uh, endeavors that you reach out to that you're looking for? not just you and your family, but actually multi-generational positive experiences.
2: For sure. I mean, look, if you want to take advantage of this idea of exponential concepts like compounded interest, the best time to start is yesterday. The second best time to start is now. And so, you know, it's the math is counterintuitive to most people who haven't studied compound interest, right? What do you want? Do you want a half a million dollars one time, or do you want $5,000 a year compounded at 10% interest for you know, 25 years. Right. And so most people just don't get the difference until they really see the effect of compound interest. And the best place and best time to start is when you're in your teens and you can basically start saving small amounts of money and see the effects of the compound interest and make a few small bets on outsized returns like cryptocurrencies, 5-10% of your income or or net worth and put the rest to work to make 8-10% to a year. It's totally fine for most people.
1: The TED Talk. You did you were the first to do a TED talk, I believe, about cryptocurrency, correct?
2: That's right. Yeah, I did a TED Talk on Bitcoin and I think it was 2012. The tech was about two years old. The idea of a blockchain was still foreign to everyone and and most people in the audience had never even heard of Bitcoin. Never mind have any. And so I think it was trading at like a dollar fifty, which was a lot at the time. I mean, people were like, How can this thing be worth, you know, a dollar? I mean, it's 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 nothing. It's ones and zeros. And now, of course, it's worth ten thousand plus, and it's a two hundred billion dollar asset, which didn't exist eleven years ago. And so, but yeah, it was an interesting, interesting time because I had to whittle it down. Remember, nobody had ever done this before, so whittling the basics down for a newbie audience that had never heard of it—it's a challenge today in two thousand and twenty. But in two thousand twelve, it was another magnitude of challenge because no one had even tried to explain it to a a non-PhD in computer science.
1: Yeah. How do you envision that? I mean, is there a certain checklist you go through mentally or formula that you measure against what will increase in value? Not just crypto, but just it seems like there's a pattern of of your endeavors that seem to be Crypto is unique. Unless it's
2: a trade secret. Yeah, crypto is unique. So I have to give you kind of two different answers, right? So Sure. So when it comes to Bitcoin, it's in its own world. Let me explain why. You'll often hear Bitcoin referred to as digital gold. What does that mean? All right. So gold derives its value ultimately because the amount of new gold created, or not created because the amount of gold in the universe is fixed, but the amount of gold found on planet Earth every year is a tiny, tiny percentage of all the gold that we've already found. Okay, so therefore, we're not diluting the amount of gold on planet Earth by very much every year, almost by zero. It's a little bit, but it's not zero. Okay, that's actually what that scarcity is what gives gold its value. Right. That's why the dollar used to be tied to gold. And the moment Nixon took us off the gold standard, everything changed from an economic perspective. Right. That's when price inflation started and Basically all the, the problems we have from a debt perspective are all traced back to taking the United States off the gold standard. We can debate that all day, whether that's good or bad, it just is. It is a fact. The fact that the situation we have today was started there, whether it's good or bad, it is subject to debate. Now Bitcoin takes that a step further. One, it's not only scarce, but it's infinitely scarce, meaning at some point, no new Bitcoin will ever be created and that is mathematically provable, okay? as opposed to gold, whereas a little bit will be found every year, but we could theoretically mine an asteroid and significantly increase the supply. Now, that may sound crazy in 2020, but it may not sound crazy in 2100. Whereas in 2100, there will still be the exact same amount of Bitcoin right, ever created as the maximum that we can say will be created now. right, And we'll never go past that. We refer to that as as the hardness of money and Bitcoin is, is as infinite hardness, which means that in theory, it should be the most valuable commodity ever created by man because we've never had a commodity, digital or physical, that was provably scarce to the point where there would be no more created. First time ever. Second, it's really easy to move around. You don't need trucks to move to Bitcoin. Anyway, long story short, this asset has a, a means of determining its value that is completely unheard of, unparalleled never existed in in human history, okay? So I kind of have to put it in its own bucket, which is why I own a lot of it, and why I wish I owned more. Now, other assets to me all relate to what I call, or interesting assets and investments all relate to what I call exponential technologies, which is a term I used before. To me, exponential technologies are the technologies that fundamentally change our lives in a way that is hard to predict in the short term, have dramatic growth and are intuitively obvious after they've happened, right? Tesla, Netflix, Apple, you know, iPhone, right? After they happened, they're all obvious, but people would laugh at them at the beginning. People laughed at it. People said Apple should shut down and give the money back to investors before the iPhone came along. People Whoa. said, you know, Tesla will never work. People said, you know, replacing uh, blockbuster with streaming will never work. And, and more and more examples of this I can give you. And so these are the things that will change everybody's life that basically show exponential growth that are exciting to me to spend time on and, and look at as, as a long-term investor. And so those are the two buckets that are personally really interesting to me today in terms of valuing investments.
1: Yeah. I like that intuitively happen again. There's a, that defies basically really reason and, um, uh, a process by that intuition? And how much do you feel that it actually plays in uh, even in your, your professional life, that there's a sense of intuition that Stanford or anywhere else we went, or doesn't, doesn't really play into that?
2: Well, Silicon Valley is unique because entrepreneurs, by definition, have a, a, an ability to s- suspend belief or disbelief, suspend disbelief that some, certain things will happen, and um, most importantly, that their startups will be successful. When most startups actually fail, right? So, so thank God that entrepreneurs are able to suspend disbelief because the ten percent that make it and, and the one percent of the ten percent that become the Mark Zuckerbergs, you know, are really what enables these exponential technologies to propel society forward. The reason that we carry smartphones, the reason that we stream movies from home, that we have gigabit fiber connections to our to our home, uh, you know, for our home internet, et cetera, et cetera are all based upon entrepreneurs suspending disbelief that, that they can do things that are, are counterintuitive, right? The, every automobile manufacturer in the United States said 15 years ago that the idea of starting a pure play electric car company is pure insanity. And here we are where Tesla is now worth than, more than I believe any other auto manufacturer in the world has probably three fantastic businesses underlying it—not only manufacturing cars, but batteries and supply chain related to EV and solar—that you know nobody believed, including friends of mine in the automotive industry. And so, so we need entrepreneurs that not only be in a position to go for it, but to have a, a more fundamental understanding of the likely impact that now it seems obvious, right? Now, you know, I, I got fires burning here. In, in the Bay Area where it's dark outside at, at, at 1130 in the morning, you know, b- because of climate change, right? That these things have to happen. And so we need those people that can take that risk early to recognize that and make it happen for everyone else. This is
1: the Entrepreneur's Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM, where uh, our public service uh, announcement today is uh, with MAPS, which is a multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. MAPS was founded in 1986 and is a 501c3 nonprofit research and educational organization that develops medical, legal, and cultural context for people to benefit from the careful uses of psychedelics and marijuana. For more information, feel free to visit them at maps.org. That's M-A-P-S org. We're talking today with Bill Barnight founder and CEO of Abra. For more information, you can visit them at abra.com. Again, that's a b r a .com. Bill, share with us why uh, uh, maps uh, has uh, matters to you.
2: Yeah. So, uh, my understanding is is first of all, uh, Rick Doblin the founder is is an amazing guy. I think he started this thing in the 80s when nobody wanted to talk about this. The whole subject was taboo. He was an outcast, uh, but he recognized early on that a lot of the work done in the 50s and 60s in this area was accurate. It's just that it it, it was basically not necessarily done in a way that the public could get their arms around why this was so important. And it got this kind of negative stigma attached to it. And so he's been on a personal 40-year mission to not only undo that, but turn everybody around. And so he's been a, a one-man wrecking ball, uh, you know, where he's managed over decades to, to get this done to the point where, you know, Michael Pollan wrote this book, which has been a seminal book in changing a lot of minds, even with, with regulators, to take a look at this. Anyway, so they're now my understanding is in phase three clinical trials of using psilocybin, which is the, uh, the, the compound that most people know of as mushrooms, to uh, have very strong efficacy on, you know, different types of clinical uh, depression and PTSD. I've seen examples of seals, for example, that have gone through uh, episodes of severe depression and have been basically have then gone through therapy using MDMA and psilocybin based treatments, where the turnaround has been dramatic. And I'm not I'm not a doctor, so I'm not doing justice to the terminology here. But I've talked to them firsthand, and it's incredible the stories that I've that I've heard and the turnarounds that I've seen, and and the families that have been kind of saved by by some of these treatments and I'm I think it's going to become a standard part of our lexicon in the next decade and it's going to become an accepted part of therapy that we can actually use these substances in a very positive simple way to help rewire uh, the brain in in a in a in a way that really is complements traditional therapy really well
1: along the lines of rewiring uh, the brain how about the wiring of entrepreneurs and the wiring of the those that see things ahead of the general populace. Do you think that that's something that can be trained or it's a gift or maybe something else?
2: Well, I think it's both. I think a lot of people are just passionate about entrepreneurship in general, but they don't have the training. And so running a business is hard, it's lonely, it's long hours, and it's stressful. And the more successful it is, the more stressful it gets. People are like, I can't wait to be successful and then all my worries will be gone. And, and I hate to say it, but the more successful you get in a lot of cases, the more worries you have because you've got more employees you know, that you care about and are worried about. You've got investors, you've got regulation, no matter what business you're in. And so, so it's not for the faint of heart, but it's personally very rewarding. I love it. I love working with entrepreneurs as much as I love running businesses and starting companies. But it, it takes a certain kind of person to recognize that the way we define risk, if you're educated in the West, is is out of whack with reality, right? If if you have a college education, if you're fortunate to have a college education in the United States, for example, not being an entrepreneur is almost crazy because the risk you're taking really when it comes down to it is minimal because you have, you have a good education to fall back on, right? I understand if, if you come from a destitute developing market country and you don't have an education that you're living hand-to-mouth, or or vis-a-vis the next dollar, that's a different story. But we have a a warped sense of risk in the United States. And that's why we don't solve problems faster, is because we don't take chances correctly. And we don't encourage more people to take chances to solve world problems. We tend to focus more on big failures. And and that's unfortunate. And Europe, Europe has this problem probably even more so than the US, right? Entrepreneurship is actually almost frowned upon in some places where you know, they, they they frown upon risk. And, and um, Talib in his book about the black swan talks about this. He calls it mediocristan, places where, <laughs> where people would, you know, frown upon this kind of risk because you never get the black swan events to the upside, right? Anyway, you know, I, I think that uh, people just don't look at risk correctly in markets where you have a large educated population.
1: Along the, that warped sense, there is a, uh, obviously here, California, specifically Stanford area, entrepreneurship is almost expected. And I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's just kind of what you do, how you, how you think. It's just how, how we're all wired. Do you think there's a cultural aspect of that too or it, it, there is. the culture of it? it there is.
2: And, and so as somebody, I'm from New York City area originally. And I can tell you that that area you know, used to be primarily kind of a professional education focused, meaning uh, I work on Wall Street, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. Those are the people that you wanted to be at least in my generation. I think that's changing now in, in, in the tri-state area. But in the, here, it changed earlier as a result of the semiconductor industry's birth, right? It was really the Fairchild Intel days that really gave birth to what became the kind of center, Stanford-centered universe of, of entrepreneurship, again, sprung out of that much earlier than what's happening in kind of that entrepreneurial scene, which is growing very fast. You know, A lot of our investors at Abra, for example, are from New York City including venture capital firms. But even today, with everybody talking about the migration away from SF, the vast majority of, of, of venture money is based here on planet Earth. And it really stems from the history of, of computing, beginning with the semiconductor industry in the late 60s, early 70s.
1: What would you like to share with yourself prefer, personally, professionally, even Abra, that we may not have touched on that you you, you think is going to be is of value to your audience today?
2: Sure. Well, I can talk about Abra first. I mean, if you're interested in even learning about cryptocurrencies, you can go to Abra.com. We have plenty of content. I do a weekly show called Money Talks, which has thousands of viewers every Friday. And um, it's on YouTube. And it teaches people about crypto. We make it super easy to get in, uh, even learn. We have a lot of people who just spend a few couple of months learning about it before they'll even put a dollar and, and again, we're very, very cautious. We recommend people putting very small amounts of money in to learn and, and get comfortable with what's going on. And then I also am very interested in more general financial education about savings and, and taking advantage of, of compound savings effects for, for young people over, over long periods of time. You know, personally, I'm a, I'm a multi-decade uh, Bay Area resident now, even though I'm from from New York City, and I'm, I'm very passionate about supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and I do that via investing in companies personally through a couple of fu- angel funds, particularly the early stage. Uh, as an individual, I, I can't really have much of an impact on the Airbnbs of the world who are already worth billions, but I can usually have a, an impact, and hopefully in a positive way, on the super early stage stuff. You know, where ninety percent of them may fail, but you know the the, the black swan of the upside is is going to be a thousand next to that anyway, or a thousand next to those failures. So, so that's obviously not only financially rewarding, but personally very, very rewarding for me. And people, if they want to talk about entrepreneurship, I'm very active on Twitter at Bill Barheitz. And I have entrepreneurs approaching me and LinkedIn as well almost every day with ideas. And, you know, it, it, the ideas are, are easy to come by. It's the traits of the entrepreneur that are harder to come by and harder to measure And I'll tell you, for me personally, you know, it comes down to grit. We can all have a great idea, and and we should, and and that's great. I wish people would spend more time just ideating about ways to solve problems in the world. But the real question about entrepreneurship boils down to to one thing. It's not about how am I going to fund it, how am I going to build it, how am I going to sell it. It comes down to what am I going to do when it's going really bad. And it will go really bad. What am I going to do? Am I going to say, oh, this isn't worth it, and go do something else? Am I going to say, well, I need to completely change everything. I I got the wrong people and I got to start over and it's just not this. Or am I going to say, okay, I got to iterate on this and go find a few customers that want this or people that want my idea now and really plow through and and just just suck it up and deal with it. And that's grit, right? Now, a lot of ideas are just bad because their timing is bad. My flying car is 15 years too early. Nobody wants it. That's fine. Right, Timing is, is one of the most important success factors, probably the number one success factor. But the number two success factor is the grit of the founders, assuming that their idea is well-timed. Meaning, yes, I can prove that people want this, but it's still really hard.
1: That was excellent. Bill, it's been a real honor having you on our show and, and a, a real pleasure too. I hope you consider coming on again.
2: Oh, my it's pleasure. Yeah, anytime, anything. Thank you very much.
1: Our guest today has been Bill Barheite founder and CEO of Abra and a Stanford alum. Abra is a peer-to-peer digital money transfer network and uh, Bill is also chairman of Boom Financial, which offers mobile banking for the unbanked, replacing cash services with a federally insured smartphone-based bank account. For more information, we'll direct you uh, to feel free to visit Abra.com. Again, it's Abra.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another purpose-driven entrepreneur or high-performing game-changer committed to ideas, positive outcomes, and a better world. I'm Tom DiOr.
0: The Entrepreneur's radio show and podcast is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and on location. The chief audio engineer is Eris Chikopoulos. Chief engineer is Mark Lawrence. And we are all assisted by Peter Caroline and Omar L. Sabrao and the executive producer and host of The Entrepreneur's Show is Tom Dior. If you wish to contact us, our email is interviews at Again, that's interviews at